Hi, this is Jacob Plummer, and this is episode four of the Health Policy Entrepreneurs, a podcast that brings together the stories and insights of experts in healthcare for discussions on what they would recommend we do through policy or business to achieve value-based care in the United States over the next 10 years. Today, we'll have that discussion with Dr. Abel Koh, who is a physician and an expert on how to best bring together health data at the local, regional, and national level to improve care in a wide variety of areas, from improving cancer care to using data to solve design questions on how we can best deliver care to vulnerable populations like the homeless. Dr. Koh's full bio will be on our show notes, but as highlights of his many accomplishments, Abel is director of the Center for Health Information Partnerships, which you can learn more about at www.healthinformationforall.org. He is an associate professor with the Department of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, and in addition to many other positions of distinction, was inducted less than a year ago to the American College of Medical Informatics, home to leaders that use data to drive improvements in consumer health, public health, and clinical research. Abel, it is great to have you, and thanks for joining me. Great. Thank you, Jacob. Pleasure to be here. So I want to begin by asking, coming out of medical school and choosing your scope of practice, how did your career take you to focusing on the role of data and connecting data for use in healthcare? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, before I even went to medical school, I, I actually had uh, been uh, an engineering student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And at that time, uh, it was uh, sort of mid-90s, and you could really see that that was really transforming the way we were doing our day-to-day uh, -day, uh, engineering research and, and, and work. Um, and that, that sort of, sort of stuck, stuck in the back of my head all throughout medical school. And it was, wasn't until during residency and during my chief year when I, I had the opportunity to work with a, um, a, a doctor, Robert Schilling, and he's, uh, somebody who I think had a big influence on me. He was a famous hematologist, uh, but he was well ahead of his time. He had actually, uh, identified that one of the ways that he could uh, develop new insights into certain uh, diseases was to track uh, conditions through a computer database. And so he actually had this old DOS database in his basement of all of the known patients that he had, but also of colleagues around the world had, of a condition called hereditary spherocytosis. And he had the foresight to be gathering this uh, in his basement for many, many years and was able to uh, publish many insightful papers uh, from that. And so we got to talking uh, during my chief year and he, uh, we, we had a trade. What, what we decided is that he would uh, teach me how to fly fish in exchange for me uh, helping him with this database. Uh, and it was a great trade. Uh, I, I think I learned far more from him. Uh, but then he also at that point in time, mentioned to me that he had a colleague uh, that I should meet, somebody by the name of Clem McDonald, who uh, worked down at a place called Regan Street Institute, and that I should go meet him, uh, because if I was interested at all in this, this field of, of, didn't even have a name, but informatics, uh, that I should go meet uh, Clem. And so I did that. I went down and met with Clem McDonald, and we got along really well. And and uh, I made the decision to switch from, at that time, a critical care fellowship. Uh, I, you know, skipped that and went and did a medical informatics fellowship with Clem. And, and uh, that was uh, sort of uh, the realization that with technology, through technology rather, we could really implement scalable system change that could make a much bigger impact on health than one at a time, seeing patients one at a time, which is still very gratifying, but, but you could just make a bigger impact through this, this scalable technology. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, for two reasons. I mean, one of them is that the fly fishing reference, before we started, I mentioned my hometown, Shelbyville, Illinois, and you actually had some awareness of it because of uh, fishing you know, being, being present there. And so, uh, so I guess that, that shows that, you know, these different interests can, can always wind up having a conversational benefit, uh, you know, in the future. But, but also when I, you know, I began, as I was telling you, as a hospital director, you know, over a decade ago, 
and then ultimately left that role because I wanted to start doing uh, work in the software space mm-hmm. with the same concept that you would get scalability mm-hmm. that's hard to get when you're running a, a particular unit of something. Yeah, no question about it. Um, you know, it, and I still practice and, and you know, you, it's, I think it's important to see every day the challenges that the patients face, the providers face. That is a, such a wealth of opportunity. All those problems that we see every day, um, those are things that need to be fixed and you can choose to fix it for your panel of patients or for your clinic. But oftentimes it's through thinking of how you might change, whether it be the system or the policies that sort of drive the system. That's where you start recognizing that, hey, I could make a difference that would influence not 2,000 patients in my panel, but rather the you know, millions of patients who are affected uh, by what are uh, really fundamental flaws oftentimes in the way we're delivering healthcare. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that, the practical effect. You know, there's a term uh, called data liquidity. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start off with that. For someone who's new to the subject, mm-hmm. can you explain what, what does this term mean and, and why is the subject important? Yeah, so data liquidity refers to, like water, uh, 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 data being able to flow uh, easily to where it needs, it's, it's needed the most. And uh, one thing that we have seen over the years is that that isn't happening. It simply isn't happening in healthcare. So we, we know that ourselves when you, as a patient, go from one institution to the other, you have to go and register a new place. On the provider side, we see it because patients come to us and they say, well, I was just seen at this other institution and I had the following care. And we literally will go and ask them to fax information to us when that should be a seamless event so that by the time I see that person, I have all the information I need to make the best decisions around the care of that patient. And it really came home to me when I was at training at Regan Street. And there they, one of the benefits there is that they not only had a, an advanced electronic health record system that they had built, but they had also put in place, they had the foresight to put in place a health information exchange. And that was transformative. I could you know, moonlight in an emergency department and I could see a patient uh, and the instant they registered, a printout would show up and it would tell me that, hey, this person was just seen a day ago at this other institution and here's their list of medications, here's the results of their most recent lab tests and don't bother repeating it because you already have that information and and maybe consider not prescribing this medication because they already are on a medication that either might uh, react with that or, or it would be too much to be on both. And so uh, that was amazing. Um, on, the, on the population health side, uh, we could also see it because, you know, when we were trying to tackle a problem of drug-resistant infections, we could see that despite our best efforts at one institution, we weren't making any impact. And the reason for that was that uh, people would keep coming into the system with infections from other places. And unless we started looking at the more broad view of a patient's experience throughout the region, we were missing some key touch points with the health system uh, where we could have intervened uh, they were op- they were missed opportunities, and those were the places that uh, health information exchange, like having data that can move to where it's needed, would have really helped us make the best decisions for that for that patient. So there's a term that we were also talking about earlier: value-based care. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you: Does that term mean anything to you, or when somebody asks you, "Hey, how 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 could we have more value-based care?" Uh, in Chicago or in the country? Are, are there specific things that come to your mind? Yeah. Uh, I think it's a, obviously it's a, it's a catchy phrase. It's a very appealing phrase. We all want good value in everything we do. So care is important. We want to have that based on good value. The, what makes it, what comes to mind for me is that it's actually a very hard thing to put in place. It's very hard to actually define what is good value uh, care. Um, people define it differently. Some people might say, well, it's low cost care. Other might say, people might say it's good outcomes for, uh, for that care. And what I would say is that it's, 
currently still very difficult for us to accurately measure the types of care we deliver uh, and to measure value accurately uh, given our current information systems. And part of that is a liquidity problem. So for example, do we know when a person is readmitted within 30 days? Well, we might know it for one institution, but if data is not liquid, you may not know that that person was admitted to the place across the street or somewhere in a different state. And that happens a lot. We know that happens a lot. In fact, in Chicago, we know it happens probably about 20% uh, of the time over the course of a couple of years. So you're missing, you're, you're just simply getting the wrong answers when you're trying to measure value unless you have a way of pooling or sharing that data together uh, in a consistent and standard way. So when you talk about getting the wrong answers and that, that metric, that statistic you gave 20% of the time, what were you referring to? Uh, that refers to the fact that in an urban region, and we've seen this actually in a couple of cities now, uh, patients we know receive care at multiple institutions. And when we look across a population, we look at, for example, a pool across multiple institutions in Chicago or in Indianapolis where we started this type of project, we can see that over the span of a couple of years, about five years, that about 20% of the patients have some type of records at one, at least one other institution, if not more, around that region. And so that scatter of information, that siloing of information, uh, means that we're just simply missing key information on that person. Uh, for example, if they do have a different diagnosis somewhere else, or if they have had an admission somewhere else, that's just not showing up. If you look at the story of the person just from the view of one institution. So the concept here is that you might, let's just use Chicago as an example, you might uh, be a patient at University of Chicago on the south side, but then you might also go to an urgent care center on Michigan Avenue. Mm -hmm. And today, there's no way if your primary care physician, let's say you have a primary care physician, uh, is looking at your records at the University of Chicago, that they'll necessarily see that you also were at the urgent care on Michigan Avenue. That is unlikely to happen today. It is unlikely to happen today. It happens uh, for certain types of information. I would say that some people are doing it better than others. Uh, for example, one nice ex uh, uh, example is we have uh, immunization registries for the state of Illinois. And so everyone can go ahead and reference that and see if you've had an immunization, but not all immunizations end up in that registry. There is a prescription monitoring program around, for example, things like opioids. And so you can go into that database and check to see if a patient has had multiple prescriptions for opioids and who prescribed those. So there are some examples where we we we're doing a, a, a good job with it, but in many of the other acute care settings, the information from one setting is not being shared easily or readily or in a timely fashion with the other places where that person receives care. And again, that means that we're missing information that's critical for making the best decision around the care of that patient. And so let me just ask about the last part of that sentence, missing information that is critical. Mm -hmm. So is it critical? I mean, do you, are there many people whose health outcomes are dramatically worse because that information isn't available or known? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the thing that I'm most uh, familiar with is around things like uh, infections. And so, for example, I'm sorry, uh, people oftentimes uh, have uh, infections that uh, can spread from patient to patient. And oftentimes that infection is already known uh, from some other institution. But when they show up at an institution where that isn't known, it, may it might take two or three days to figure that out, whether you test them there or you eventually get the information from somewhere else. In that time and during that time, that infection has the opportunity to be spread from place to place to place unless people were taking the appropriate precautions to prevent that happening. And so that, that's an example where if the information was known the instant they showed up at that institution, you could have stopped that. You could have prevented that, that likely spread. Amazing. So we, you had mentioned earlier that you have worked at some locations where there is what's called uh, the HIE. And let me know if... if yeah, maybe let me, uh, let me return this call. Sorry. Okay, sure. We'll just pause for a second here. Okay, great. Yeah, one, one of the things I was going to ask you was 
you said that you've worked at some places that have what we call health information exchanges, yeah. but they're not everywhere. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Well, well, financially, they, they don't make a lot of sense for a lot of places. That's the unfortunate reality. Um, you know, a lot of health information exchanges were set up uh, with initial funding from uh, a grant or some uh, federal funding or even from payers in some instances. And the, the return on investment has to be there. It, it, they, are, they, they do cost to maintain. Um, and, you know, where, where do you, you know, how do you, how do you make a return on that? And that's where I think many of them have struggled. Uh, there's a difference between sort of realized savings, uh, uh, in other words, reduced cost versus actually generating revenue. And I think that's been a place where people have not always um, found that exact right formula. You know, one of the things that I remember thinking years ago is that if you're an institution and you're investing, and I'll just use MRI machines as an example, mm-hmm. but if you're investing in, in having MRI machines in your hospital and they, they carry a capital expense, and, and then you have patients who are coming in that maybe have had a, an MRI mm-hmm. done mm-hmm. elsewhere, and uh, the, the, you know, some people say, oh, well, you should, you know, uh, pay for this information exchange because then you can pull up the MRI that was mm-hmm. done elsewhere and you won't have to do it here. Yep. Well, that's great on, it, it, you know, from the perspective of maybe the overall system. Yep. But when I think about the fact that I just bought this MRI machine and if I'm not using it, then I'm just going to be losing money and I have a responsibility to keep my organization uh, solvent. So, and if there's additional costs to become part of the information exchange, am I just going to be getting a double hit? That's right. So that's, that is what is happening. I think a lot of times. And, and I you, think that that's a really good observation, Jake. I think, um, you know, uh, when we talk, it goes back to the thing you mentioned about value-based care, value from whose point of view, right? So for some, many places today, the way the current market dynamics are set up, you get paid more for that additional MRI. And so there is a lot of incentives in place for people to continue to provide more care or do more testing than is currently necessary. Now, is that good value-based care? I think arguably, if you're the person having to pay for the MRI, it is not good value for your care. And we also know that you know, going and doing additional imaging studies on people may end up leading us down paths we don't want to go, which are in themselves costly and may lead to morbidity for patients. So that is not good value-based care. So I think what we have, and you've accurately pointed out, is we have a discrepancy uh, between uh, sort of who, who's, who's deciding value uh, and uh, you know, who's paying for things. And there, that, 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 that sort of gap is one of the places where I think health information exchanges struggle to find, try to find their, their fit between those two opposing incentives. So I think that, you know, you've, you've talked about some of the challenges, we've talked about the financial challenges, there's um, technical challenges. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked too much about that. Yeah. Uh, maybe tell us from your perspective, what's the state of the technology today in mm-hmm. being able to facilitate data sharing? Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing about that is I think oh, the technology has never been the issue and it, it's, it's as good, if, obviously it's better than it was before. But that still isn't the limitation. Um, there are some things that are, are challenging uh, uh, and have always been. So, for example, uh, identifying who a person is. So the management of a person's identity across institutions has always been challenging. And the current state of matching patients uh, is still imperfect. Uh, and there have been a number of efforts over the years and patient matching challenges, et cetera, that have just never achieved the super high fidelity that people would want. Uh, but there are many solutions out there that are good enough. I mean, they would get you most of the way there. That's been one of the issues. The other big challenge is, is if you can find out who that person is, can you ship data in a way across institutions that is so-called interoperable? Uh, at least it should be uh, person-readable. We have that. It's called the fax machine, unfortunately. But, you know, we should be able to do so in a way that the one system can consume it easily uh, and then be able to uh, match that with 
data for that same person to create a, a continuous story of that person's health. The, the, the standards required for that exist today. And, but there's a challenge in the effort it takes to map what are oftentimes sort of different ways of storing data into a common format so that they are the same or comparable across institutions. They've existed for a long time. It's, it's, again, it's, it's not technical. Oftentimes, it's just very hard manual work to translate from a current health record system into a format that another health record system can readily sort of compare against. Is your sense that there are some organizations that are doing a good job at both of those uh, aspects, both the matching across different institutions and then also taking the data, even if they're using different clinical systems or source systems, but mapping it to a common, uh, to a common model? Yeah, I, I think uh, we did mention that there are some places that have functioning health information exchanges, and obviously they've found a way to solve that. I think we're seeing really exciting consumer facing sort of efforts. I think Apple has this new effort underway and there's uh, institutions, uh, one in Chicago, for example, and they've used sort of uh, commodity internet standards uh, and developed ways for patients to authenticate appropriately. So the person themselves reconciles their own identity uh, and they've adhered to well-recognized national standards for how you would make equivalent data across institutions using, again, uh, you know, good practices around APIs or application programming interfaces and uh, using accepted or becoming more accepted uh, messaging or transport standards like the HL7 Fire sort of uh, standard. Uh, and, and these are also not only efficient, but they're also incredibly secure. And so there are, I think, really exciting examples like that. That solves, that helps solve, I think, the problem around the clinical care setting because the patients engage and at the individual patient level, care level. But as we talked about earlier, it, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily solve the issue about how we pool records for multiple patients together for some of the more population insights. So it's at the individual level, which that's, that's quite different though from pooling records for many people for population health insights. So I think that this may take us to talking about groups like PCORI mm -hmm. and, and then here in Chicago, Capricorn, mm -hmm. and then another group uh, that I think you've done work with, ReachNet. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you just give some background on what is PCORI and, and who are these groups with interesting names like Capricorn and ReachNet? Sure. So uh, uh, PCORNet is funded by an organization called PCORI, which stands for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And it was an outgrowth of the Affordable Care Act. And the goal of that was to create um, a, a national network uh, for conducting uh, comparative effectiveness research uh, to give us the best information to make decisions on patients. And uh, PCORNet is, uh, was set up to have uh, clinical data research networks, oftentimes uh, anchored within an academic institution, and patient-powered research networks that were typically anchored by a, a patient advocacy organization. And they created this network of of, I think, 13 clinical data research networks and multiple uh, patient-powered research networks blanketing the country and touching many different patient populations in many different communities. And Capricorn is an example of one of those clinical data research networks. Uh, it's currently uh, anchored here at Northwestern, uh, but really is a consortia of 11 institutions that have come together uh, to standardize the way that we uh, manage our health record data so that it can be pooled or at least analyzed together to come up with insights around what treatments, for example, are most effective across the populations we serve. 
And um, it's been, uh, I think, uh, a, a great example of how you know a policy, for example, in this case, ACA, was able to lead to a national initiative, which is now at the cusp of being able to demonstrate sort of real novel insights about how we best provide the best care for patients. And so some, some, of, some of the applications you were talking about were research insights, mm-hmm. but it's not only, and certainly research in medicine has the purpose of advancing clinical outcomes for yeah. people, but you know, I, was, I was intrigued by the example that you gave me earlier about how this has given some insight into the homelessness, mm-hmm. a best way to provide care for patients that are homeless. Can you tell me more about that? Sure, yeah. Um, because it's created a standard uh, data platform so that data is comparable across institutions, what that allows us to do is to uh, pool and link records across multiple institutions in Chicago. But some of the work we've done in Chicago, even before Capricorn, was to identify ways to link records across multiple institutions in a way that preserved privacy. And that technical development allowed us to not only link records across institutions, but also to link to data that might be from other organizations. And so uh, when one of the exciting projects that Fred Rockman and Bill Trick uh, are leading as part of, of Capricorn has been to uh, bring on board All Chicago, uh, which is an organization focused on the health of, uh, uh, of the homeless population in Chicago, and to uh, find uh, uh, or, or really start a collaboration where we could share records between the All Chicago database of the homeless um, uh, patient, uh, homeless individuals rather in Chicago, and I'll link that with the electronic health record uh, records of of the patients identified as homeless by the the, the health systems. And in that pilot project, uh, we've been able to find out naturally that the combination of both the All Chicago Homeless Management Information System Registry and that of the health systems, that that pooled uh, set of, of individuals was larger than anyone alone. We could also see how uh, providing homes to the homeless population resulted in uh, improved follow-up of these patients in ambulatory care settings and reduction in the uh, use of emergency departments and inpatient hospitalizations, all through what we all know to make sense, all through giving better and more stable housing to individuals. So it's a nice way of sort of taking advantage of, 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 of the ability to link records across not just institutions, but also to other organizations to develop an insight around what interventions work best for a population. So you said that the, at the beginning of that, that what made this possible was uh, a method to preserve privacy and then sharing, sort of linking records, but having privacy be at the core of that. What does that mean, that privacy um, was sort of a core component? Sure. Well, we, we've always been sensitive to the fact that, uh, you know, pe- people's privacy is paramount in healthcare. I mean, it's written into the law. It's written into the regulations. You know, the um, uh, Health Insurance uh, uh, Protection and Portability Act, I mean, uh, uh, Accountability Act, uh, it, it stipulates that, you know, you have to take that into account, and there's penalties in place for that. Um, and so many years ago, we actually had, uh, in trying to replicate some of the work we had in Indianapolis, we actually uh, created a, a, a little software tool that would allow us to uh, take a person's health information, uh, protected health information, and encrypt it in a way so that uh, it, it was considered completely de-identified. And those encrypted, de-identified tokens could be shared across the institutions. And that, that actually allowed us to, to, to link records across institutions without having to have all of the 
onerous sort of other agreements, legal agreements and contracts, whatever, what have you, that would have slowed up that progress quite a lot. Um, having said all that, uh, there's much more than just the technical part. There's also the community building to get institutions to work together and trust each other and to be willing to sign agreements when, when that is necessary. And so, so if I understand correctly, that the nice thing about this is that you could say, here's a list of you know, one organization that, that specializes in the homeless population might have a list that says, here's all the people that we have that we know are homeless. And then an emergency room downtown might say, well, here's a list of all of the people that we know mm -hmm. um, have come in for uh, frequently into the emergency room. And we may or may not know if they're homeless. But this is a way of, uh, and if we weren't care, if we if we if we weren't concerned about privacy, you'd probably see if these two groups wanted to work together. What you see in other parts of our sort of non-healthcare sector, where people are trading information mm -hmm. all the time, um, but here, you know, people want to say, well, we want to work together. We want to see where there's overlaps, but it's it's tricky today to do it in an ethical way and in a mm -hmm. legal uh, way. But here's a technology solution that allows us to see how much overlap there is in these two different mm -hmm. populations. And we can do that. And maybe we don't know exactly who it is, mm -hmm. uh, but we know that there's 30% of the people that are coming in, I'm making up this number, yeah. but are also on a list um, and known to be homeless. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's I think one of the, the stronger use cases is to develop insights on a, on a population or a cohort or a group of individuals uh, without having to expose uh, who they are. Because many of these are, are sensitive issues. People may choose not to reveal certain things about themselves when they present for cure, and we want to try to respect that. Yet, you also want to be able to develop insights around what, what, what is the best care we can provide. Uh, so there is, that, there is that balance that we have to strike, and, and I think methods like this um, you know, are, are one way to do it. And so that's for a specific, you know, part of the population. Every big city uh, has, has vulnerable populations, like, home, like the homeless. You know, you were telling me earlier that you're actually at a point now with the Capricorn Initiative here in Chicago mm -hmm. that you could kind of get a sense of what's the, what's the pulse of, of yep. Chicago. What does that mean? Well, well, this is something that we uh, are really passionate about. We, we actually have been working in the space for, uh, even before uh, Capricorn, many years before, actually, we actually had set up some of this record linkage work in order for us to pool records across institutions to identify what the burden of disease was um, in Chicago. And uh, we had done a little bit of work uh, to pool this, these records together and, and create cuts of that information for a, a, a Chicago Health Atlas project, which has been rekindled recently by the Public Health Department. And uh, in the intervening years since that project, we've uh, continued to obviously to refine the, the technical linkage part, but also uh, what's exciting is we've now, with Capricorn's help, been able to um, put all of the other surrounding support pieces in place that allows us to go ahead and pool records effectively across institutions. That means we found ways to standardize the data uh, in a way consistently across institutions. We've put in uh, uh, you know, agreements in place across the institutions. We've put together um, approval process through a steering committee, uh, through a central IRB. Um, we've more importantly built community so that uh, there's regular meetings of the leadership of the different organizations and we all uh, can look across the table from each other and we've built a sense of trust that uh, allows us to move very quickly now. Uh, so if we do and want to and we can uh, check, for example, the blood pressures for 8 million people that live in and around Chicago, we can do that and do so in a way that allows us to map that and also still preserve privacy. So we can know, for example, what communities are most affected and and then at some interval time in the future, we can go ahead and remeasure that so we can see if our interventions are making a difference. And so uh, the exciting part is that uh, we've got uh, lots and lots of information from lots and lots of electronic health records standardized. And so it's not just for blood pressure, but we, we could uh, in the near future do that same pooling and, and dashboard insight for uh, multiple conditions across multiple parts of Chicago. 
and really just have sort of real-time dashboards. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. So that's the goal. Right now we are sort of in a uh, every three-month or quarterly refresh. So it's a retrospective look right now, but uh, you know we can keep on refining that to get to the point, hopefully, where we can be much more uh, real-time. Although for many of these conditions, uh, you know, what a week versus a month, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Is this something that you think credibly could exist for other cities outside of Chicago? No question. And that's one of the big, po- that's, that's, that's one of the big, I think value adds of something like PCORnet is it's a, it's a national network of multiple groups like Capricorn. And, and if we can do it here, uh, because we're all on the same common data model, the same standard data model, uh, if we can do it here, we can, we can do it at any of the other clinical data research networks. And that means you're not covering just 8 million people. You're covering potentially, you know, 170 million people around the country. And you're able to look and see what the blood pressure or pulse is of, you know, half the country. Wow. And so with that, I mean, the key benefit is that you could have uh, people trying one set of interventions in New York and, and other people trying a different set of interventions in Chicago and you know, understanding the populations are not identical, but I mean, you could actually be running a series of experiments to see what is driving better health outcomes. And that's exactly the point of, of PCORnet. It was to drive comparative effectiveness research. Um, and, uh, it's, it, we, we knew it would take a long time. This is not easy work, but, uh, I think that, uh, I'm really, really excited to see how far it's come and, and, and starting to see the early studies being, um, put in place and, and early results starting to come out. So I think it's, it's right, right where it's supposed to be. Uh, maybe took us a little longer than we wanted to, but, uh, it, it, it's right there now. Is it, is it too early to speculate on? what the first kinds of interventions might start to be that would then be using this sort of this data and this measurement as a way of assessing success? Yeah. So uh, one of the places that we see a lot of interest is around looking at the efficacy of, of medications, for example. So, you know, one of the first trials that was proposed was looking at the efficacy of low versus high dose aspirin for secondary prevention. That means that for people who already have coronary disease, uh, who goes on to have certain subsequent events. And so uh, that's a nice example. There's um, interesting work going on right now to see what the relative uptake of some of the new cholesterol medications are and and do those have differences in outcomes compared to what we have used for many years, like the cholesterol-lowering uh, statins. Uh, so it's a lot of these medication efficacy uh, questions which can be answered and of course, uh, questions around medication safety. And so those are, I think, really, uh, the, the system is well designed for that. It seems that on the medication safety aspect, it's remarkably potentially beneficial to be able to see how somebody is doing that maybe received their medication in one place and then uh, is off someplace else having adverse effects. And today you don't know that that's happening because the systems aren't connected. But here you might be able to say, well, how many people that were on this particular drug have wound up in an emergency room on the other side of the of the city or even someplace else in the country, to your point? Yeah, exactly right. And I think that's a, a big benefit, again, of this type of network. And, and it's not just random that this happened. If you look at some of the uh, uh, groups that have helped really shape uh, and, and are uh, continuing to help shape the network. Group, groups like uh, Rich Platt's group at Harvard Pilgrim uh, have been involved with the FDA for many years in, in building out medication safety or surveillance networks. And they certainly have had a hand in shaping PCORnet and continue to help us uh, and to answer these exact kind of questions. Because prior to this, a lot of the medication safety has been done in a very ad hoc manner. It's been people uh, post um, release of the medication uh, would just have to manually report back to FDA and say, oh, look at I had a side effect with this medication. And you would re- sort of string together sort of these reports. Now you have a chance to actually actively surveil the landscape through electronic health record data and say, you know what, patients who receive this medication actually do have a higher rate of this outcome compared to those who have, have not been exposed to that. And doing so in a way that accounts for variations in the populations, uh, you know, there are different demographics and, and other exposures. 
So uh, it's, it's well designed for that. And it's, um, it needs to be sort of, uh, there's a continued push to, to, to get more and more studies in the pipe uh, that can answer those questions. This is what is called post-market surveillance. Mm -hmm. Is that the right? It, it is, yeah. So medication safety or post-marketing surveillance, whether it be for drugs or devices. And traditionally, that's been uh, in the purview of the FDA and, and uh, uh, groups like this, uh, Mini Sentinel Network have been sort of pioneering in that space. And again, a lot of that work is, and the lessons learned from that have been brought forward into PCORnet. You had mentioned um, earlier some initiatives with precision medicine. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about, and maybe give a little background on what precision medicine is. Some people who have never heard the phrase before, I, I've, I've heard say, well, isn't a lot of medicine, you know, precision medicine? And so, but, it, but it means something very specific. Certainly, yeah. So it, it, I wish it was all more precise, if not, but um, uh, it's more the practice of medicine for a reason. Um, but the precision medicine, as uh, I'm referring to now, is actually was an initiative started under the Obama administration. Uh, back in 2015, and and the idea behind that was uh, that much like efforts in other countries, we were going to put together a uh, an effort to bring data for a million Americans together uh, to help us gain insights into what drives disease and how we might better or more precisely target treatments to certain diseases. And so the goal of this effort uh, is to uh, pool together uh, data, in this case, electronic health record data, uh, survey data, physical exam data, and genetic data, in addition to whatever else we can get our hands on, uh, with a full, for a fully consented population, pool those records together, and make those available for not just academic researchers, but for Anybody who has interest, if you're a, a citizen of this country, you should be able to access that. If you participate in the program, you should be able to uh, eventually get back your own information. Uh, and so we can empower the citizen scientists, people who have uh, the interest and the capacity to, to, answer, to ask good questions uh, and empower them through, through these data to, to, to do that. And so that's been... Um, a very exciting project. It's, I think, in its second year and making good progress with recruitment. And we're lucky that our team has been involved in helping to uh, look at some of the problems with electronic health record data. And there's lots of problems. But what's fun is it's given us um, a very clear uh, project set of goals to deliver on. Uh, and, and we're working hard at it. And so that's much like with PCORnet, um, we're finding ways to standardize electronic health records across institutions, uh, bring them all together, uh, and uh, transform them into sets of data that are ready to be analyzed by researchers of all stripes. Is there, is there any way that you can, I mean, we were talking earlier about the role of privacy, right, and sharing information. Is there any way that you can have a private uh, sharing or mapping of a, a database with people's genetic information? Because it seems like the genetic information is you. Yeah. It, it, that, this one's a much more difficult or challenging space. Um, genetic information and, and uh, what that means is constantly changing, but, but it is pretty clear uh, that it, it's, it can be very identifying, you know? And there are efforts and groups that have been thinking about this for several years, actually. Uh, there's a genomic privacy group um, that holds a conference every year. Uh, the last one actually was here in Chicago. And uh, they have been thinking of clever ways of sort of pooling records or uh, together, genetic information together, and still preserving privacy. Sometimes that's through encryption methods. Sometimes that's through so-called secure multi-party computing methods. But um, I, 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 I would... I would hesitate to bet against this group. They're a, they're a smart group, and I, I think that um, uh, from what I've seen, I, they, they have managed to find ways to, uh, much like we do with the clinical data, derive insights from aggregations of that data without actually having to share or pool that data. It's almost like you uh, can find the key thumbprints that that genetic information uh, tells you 
without actually having to share the thumb. So I was in a conversation at National Cancer Institute, must have been about maybe a year and a half ago. And, um, and one of the oncologists I was talking to, he said, you know, when we have patients come in, uh, let's say that somebody has colon cancer, and he said, we can uh, today, you know, benefit from being able to see the results of some genetic testing along with the uh, with the sort of phenotypic uh, mm-hmm. results of uh, of say a colonoscopy mm-hmm. is it because there might be times where I'm looking at the uh, at the genetic analysis and I think oh this person may be at increased risk but if I see that they had a colonoscopy and, and there were no polyps and I'll mm-hmm. say well actually it's it's not to be worried about yeah he said so having the two the, the information combined is far more valuable than having it alone he said but you know he said, my concern is that today, he said, when we have a tumor board, we'll be bringing people together sometimes that will, that will be, um, you know, have all this information and we'll come to a conclusion. But then it's not documented in a way that makes it sort of part of a bigger universe of available data. And he said, and, and so what, where it starts to become troubling is that he said, you know, at our clinical center, we're actually seeing a couple hundred patients. You know, patients are measured in the hundreds. He said, but at Memorial Sloan Kettering, their patients are being measured in the thousands. Mm -hmm. He said, what would be great is to have a a database that could be queried so that I could say, well, hey, my patient here that has these genetic variants and these, you know, uh, phenotypic, you know, findings, who else is like them, Mm -hmm. you know, and and what was the uh, type of treatment that was provided Mm -hmm. to that patient? And if it was a couple of years ago, what have been the outcomes, Mm -hmm. you know, for that? And 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 he was saying that's something that they you know he's like I can imagine that future but that future you know isn't here yet. Let me ask you. I mean, it sounds like what you're talking about would help facilitate that kind of future. No question. And and I think one of the uh, focus areas around precision medicine is in the cancer space. I think it's one of the places where I think we are seeing uh, precision medicine practice today. Uh, and in fact. Uh, you, it's, it's almost malpractice not to do that now, where when in the past we might say, okay, this person has, we just had the phenotype. We say this person has breast cancer. We're going to do a mastectomy. And nowadays you would never do that. You would say, what is the immunophenotype? So we can measure the person and see what markers are on the cancer. What is the person's genetic profile? Uh, and based on the combination of that and the current phenotypic presentation, you would tailor therapy that would precisely hit certain immunomarkers. And that's true for many cancers now. The hard part is that we don't always know. We don't have enough information. We haven't pooled enough information across multiple studies like you described to be able to know exactly what is the right treatment for, the right, for, this, for this one person. But as those records start coming together, and they are happening, there's obviously efforts going on in, uh, from all different uh, innovative companies that are out there. One here in town, as you know, Tempest is working on some of that as well, uh, is, is trying to pull all these records together to get the largest number of these cases together. So you can actually run sort of rapid fire studies to have the insight to say, okay, for patients that all fit into this subtype of disease and this presentation, what is the treatment that resulted in the best outcome? And it's, it's unfortunately, it's a, it's a big data problem. It's getting data all together in one place in a standardized way. We can get the genetic information together. What's hard is actually getting the phenotypic information together, that EHR data, that because that's very soft. It's observational. Someone says and looks at somebody says, this is what they see, as opposed to something coming off a sequencer, uh, which is much harder you know, endpoints. But we need big numbers for that because there's multiple factors that play into how disease is expressed. There's environment as well, for example. We don't even account for that. But you need very large sets because, you know, some of these conditions are rare. And in order to find those, you know, statistical breakpoints, you just need more and more and more, more and more data. So I think that it's, it's coming across, you know, this is what we were kind of thinking is the advantage of these data networks is population health insights, post-market surveillance insights, precision medicine mm-hmm. health insights. Think about the last five years and think about the next five years. Yeah. Where do you think the 
uh, and, and I guess this is going to be a scale that I'm asking you to sort of invent in your yeah. mind, but yeah. are, are we at an inflection point or is, is, is the rate of change over the last five years going to be the same rate of change over the next five years? What's your gut tell you? My, my gut tells me that medicine's on the precipice of being completely transformed. Uh, and the way we practice medicine today is going to be very different in 10 years. I mean, I just think about, again, the cancer treatment model is a good example. The, once you have enough data put together, you can, the, the combination of the data will provide you insight that no individual expert could ever could ever could determine. And so the days of shilling and the, 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 the database in the basement are going to be replaced by you know, everybody's a shilling. Everyone has access to the database for all conditions. I mean, that's, that's the type of power that we're able to see where you can start differentiating between even common diseases. So it won't be you have diabetes. You actually have this subtype of diabetes for which this particular treatment is the best for you. And that is, it's, it's easy to imagine that future because it's simply a matter of getting enough data together at scale uh, to be able to develop those insights in a rapid fashion. And no, no, no question that it, it, it's happening. Uh, uh, you know, is it five years, 10 years? Hard to say. I think, like I said, one of the things that limits us, I think, is not the technical part, which I think is being solved, but there are certainly policy issues that need to be resolved and also financial sort of drivers that need to be resolved. But uh, uh, it's just a matter of one. So I want to pivot the conversation now and think about the role of the person in, this, in the next 10 years. And so I, I think that many people are aware that uh, look, we live in a data world, right? And so many companies, even just outside of healthcare, it's mm -hmm. about data, you know? Mm -hmm. So we might say, when I first heard that Netflix was going to be coming up with its own content, and this was not that long ago, right? I mean, yeah. it was just like maybe half a decade ago, like yeah. five years ago. And, and they said, oh yeah, we have all this consumer information of what people are buying and, and what they're watching. And so we can get a sense of what the preferences are. And I don't know if you're a Netflix subscriber, yeah. but if you are, right, you, you open it now and they have, hundreds of shows, right, yep, that yep. are all for these different cohorts. I mean, the amount of content has, has just exploded and it's being tailored towards certain viewers yep. that they know will engage with that content, yep, right? Yep. Um, I think also that there was this uh, famous case that came out where they had, where Netflix had released a lot of, of data that was de-identified. Yeah. Are you familiar with yes, this story? Yes, Re-identification of, of, of you and users. Yeah. And, and, and a couple of yeah. entrepreneurial statistics yep. professors, yep. I think in, in Texas yeah. said, well, let's combine this data, yep. you know, to the IMDB mm -hmm. uh, movie review data. Yep. And they were able sort of tragically for the person who, who was sort of caught up in this to identify that, you know, somebody had been, uh, their, their sexuality was, yep. Uh, as lesbian and they can yep. tell because of all the yep. movies and the reviews, you know, yep. that, that she was putting forth. Right. Yep. And on the one hand, you're kind of like, wow, the statistics are amazing. But on the other hand, it's, it's pretty chilling. Right. Yep. And yep. so, but, but we, but we know that the, that people want our data and sometimes our health could be better mm -hmm. if we were releasing our data, you know, to the, to the right folks. Yep. Right. Yeah. So, I wanted to, to ask you, is there a future where patients can have what I think is called transaction tracking themselves and, and be able to see who wants their data, um, even have a, even decide who they want to release their data to, um, and, and maybe gain in the upside themselves? Maybe it's a financial upside. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's access to care that they otherwise wouldn't have. Tell me your thoughts thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a really exciting future and also daunting future. Um, you know, as an, as an individual, I think that makes a ton of sense. You know, people should um, be able to control exactly who, who accesses it. Um, and and, and, and in, in theory, we should be able to do that now. Uh, is it uh, possible technically for, the, for that the, kind of... The issue is right now, it's, it's quite difficult for people to actually extract that and say, okay, who, who actually had a touch point on this? But... Um, but it is doable. I mean, you can go through log files and try to figure out who, who touched uh, a person's data. So it, it is. It's just that it's not a routine thing that we, we sort of deliver on. But um, the, the daunting part is that we don't yet know what the effect on, 
on the availability of that data for for particular uses will be. Um, and a lot of it is based on very simple things like whether people have to opt in or opt out consent for uses and and so i i think while i think it is the right thing to do i think more work needs to be done to figure out if we do that do that what would be the effect on data availability and bias uh, in the research that results from that um i think that there's some interesting natural experiments happening already in the social media space you know you think about things like facebook how are people setting up their their current uh, consent and privacy settings already uh and um you know I, I think that's 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 shifting it depends on what generation you're in as to how people sort of sort of determine that but um you know as to whether or not people should benefit from their own data absolutely they should um and i i have seen uh, some interesting efforts to try to do that to try to make people part of the value chain and we've thought about that as well uh again i think that we, we still have to think more through again what what are the implications because you're always trying to balance between the utility of the data versus the privacy of the data. There's never, there's never, a, it's, it's not a either or. There's always a trade-off, um, and you, 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 you can't, you can't have both. It turns out um, perfectly. You have to have some trade-off. Right, some trade-off. But it sounds like with the, at least with some technologies, maybe the the goal is to lower that trade-off. Right, so you can. Mm-hmm get closer to having your cake and eating it too. That's right. And that's actually how the privacy standards are actually set up. I think there's been a recognition that sparked by similar cases in healthcare where people got re-identified that you can have um, it quite private or quite secure, but it's never 100%. And so, um, so instead what they have put in place are uh, policies around re-identification uh, risk um, that require, for example, that an expert uh, perform a statistical analysis to figure out if something is re-identifiable. Uh, and then also, you know, ideally, you put in penalties in place so that people don't try to do that. I have some closing questions. The first is we've we've spoken some about uh, Bicornet and how, uh, so anybody who, who hadn't known much about it, as, as I didn't even mm-hmm. a month ago, uh, I think can can get excited about what the futures are that it's enabling. Are there any healthcare data sharing initiatives you've heard of that you thought were brilliant ideas, whether they've succeeded or they haven't succeeded within the United States or outside? Well, I have to say that um, I, I, I don't think I touched on this enough, but the precision medicine initiative actually is, I find very exciting uh, because it is, um, Many things we just talked about, uh, it is really thinking through sort of how do you appropriately consent individuals, steward that information, uh, and make sure that's able to be shared back with patients. And uh, I, I've been involved in that now for a little bit through a task force, and it's, it's touching on a lot of very thorny issues about identity and about privacy and uh, and the standards and and uh, I I've not seen I I think it's it's very forward thinking and it's 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 one of the ones that I'm I'm really excited to be part of. How do people find out more about that? Uh, so um, the Precision Medicine Initiative is uh, through the NIH, and so you can just uh, go to the NIH website and uh, type in or look for Precision Medicine, and they'll pull up the uh, the All of Us Research Program. I think it might just be called All of Us. Uh, dot, I can't remember dot gov or dot org, but it's one of those, and uh, it's not dot com. I, I know that. So, and then I wanted to ask: Are there any books or favorite articles or podcasts? And, and sometimes it's it's the ones that you recommend the most. Uh, yeah. You know, to anybody to for people to be able to better understand what's the future of what can be accomplished with data networks, and what's the future of of having. Uh, advances in the precision medicine and the population health and the post-market surveillance that we've sort of touched on here? Well, well there actually are, there, there are textbooks out there. There's one that is by a good colleague, uh, Brian Dixon over at Regan Street published a book on, it's actually just called Health Information Exchange with something after that, but uh, uh, Dixon, D-I-X-O-N. And that's a nice summary, I think, of sort of the current landscape and where things might go. Um, 
actually other colleagues at Regan Street have uh, been a part of an effort called uh, Open Health Information Exchange, which is uh, they have a little blog attached to that. That's actually really exciting work. And and outside the U.S. primarily, it's 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 showing how some of these principles about community building and standards and uh, and workflow, attention to workflow, um, uh, can really be put into practice uh, in oftentimes underserved settings. And I, I always find it exciting to see what they've done and, and to watch that work, which uh, uh, is really making an impact. And so um, it gives me hope that we can bring some of those same principles and, and apply them back here in the States. When you mentioned earlier that there's a, a vision of having dashboards for the city of Chicago in order to be able to see the health of the, of the city, will those be at all publicly available? Or yes, is there- yes, that is the absolute goal. That is actually something that I... Uh, uh, we've waited a long time to do this. It's taken us a long time to get to this point, but that is uh, uh, something that we'd like to put up uh, relatively soon so that you can go to a website and, and look at the pulse of Chicago and see where we are and, and look across a bunch of different conditions and, and in a way that you know, ensures the privacy of individuals yet allows us to get, get insight into how are we doing? How is Chicago doing today? Um, and uh, you know, how are we doing tomorrow after we've, we've put in the right sort of uh, public health initiatives to make, make, make people uh, healthier. We're going to make sure when those are up, we'll make them part of the show notes. Yes, so that that, can, yeah, that, that is my, 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 my passion is to get something like that up uh, relatively soon. Excellent. Well, thanks for spending the afternoon. Yeah, great. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate the time. Thanks.